I'd like to pray with you for a moment before we look into God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we've just been singing the doxology, there's this great Trinitarian truth in there where we're invited to praise God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we first see this beautiful truth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, then God, and that's written in the singular in Hebrew, it says, then God said, let us, and it switches to the plural, then God's singular said, let us make man in our image. And the image of God is stamped into our life. And so this morning, in something we don't totally comprehend, but there's this beautiful truth of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is one essence, yet three persons. We praise you this morning. And we just invite you to speak to our hearts through your spirit. As we open your word up, would you speak as only you can with clarity, but also just in a very intimate way. We invite you and we offer ourselves to that end. And so we pray these things and we ask them in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about singleness. But before I do that, let me read about a future promise that's coming one day. And we're going to come back to this passage at the end of the message. But just keep this in mind, rolling around in the back of your head. And it's found in the book of Hosea. Hosea, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to it, uh, in it, to the book of Hosea, which is just to the right of center in your Bible. If you're in Psalms, keep going, you'll come to Isaiah and Jeremiah. A little bit further, Daniel, and then right after Daniel, come to the book of Hosea, and it's got 12 chapters, but we're going to look in Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, and it says this, it says, in that day, and that's a reference we see numerous times in scripture, it's a messianic reference, talking about when Jesus will come, and it's even talking about when he'll come again, so it's a future type of thing. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all, so that all may lay down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. I know that that's speaking about future reconciliation between God and Israel at that time. But I also believe there's a personal element and promise for us. We'll talk about that a little bit later. When I mentioned what I was going to be speaking about today, I'm imagining that there were some people thinking this. What does Scott, who's been married for 32 years, know about this? I recognize that any superficial patronizing words from a married person about singleness can be not only unproductive, but it can really be destructive. And I recognize that this is not a simple subject. 
And so I've tried to reflect as I've studied Scripture. I've tried to prayerfully prepare for this. And with God's help, I'm going to do my best to bring some wisdom to this. I also recognize the second thing I want to acknowledge, that there's just a myriad of diversity when it comes to this subject. So let me just mention a number of things that have occurred. So when you think about the idea of singleness, I know that there are some in this room that are single because of the death of a spouse. And I, I know nothing about that. I've never gone through that. But it could well be that you're just facing challenges you never anticipated in light of that. Maybe you're here today and you're single because of a divorce and, and, and I don't know your exact circumstances. It could well be that you've gone through incredible turmoil because of that. Perhaps you're even carrying, and this may not be the case, but perhaps you're carrying a sense of failure and a sense of regret. I don't know. Others are here today and they've never been married but they would like to get married someday. But for whatever reason, they've chosen to delay marriage. Uh, Maybe they're finishing school. Maybe there's a vocational pursuit that they're involved with. Maybe they just haven't found the right person yet. You might be here today, and some people have just deliberately chosen a single life. There might be some here today that are processing a sexual orientation issue. And they're asking God to process that, and so they're single. Some of them might have grown up seeing a very destructive marriage played out in front of them, and they're saying, I don't want to touch that. Some people prefer singleness because of the freedom that's involved. Others might say, you know, singleness might not be my first preference, but I have just a high, high level of contentment as a single person, whether it's vocationally or relationally or spiritually. And, and they understand, it, and, and I think hopefully many understand, that being married is not automatically better or more fulfilling. Absolutely not true. It's not automatically the case. And I recognize that there would be some people here that are in a lot of pain over this issue because they're asking, why not me? I wanted to be married. I want to have children. And so I'm going to try to to just gently address a few questions, certainly not all the questions, but a few questions that you might have. And so what are some of the questions that occur just right away to me? You might be thinking, you know, is it wrong for me to want to be married? Or you might be saying, if, if God doesn't want me to be married for some reason, why doesn't he take that desire away? Or some of you might even be wrestling and thinking, you know, if, if I'm a Christian, shouldn't, shouldn't God be enough in this circumstance? And the reasons these kinds of desires are there and that they run so deep is that we were created, as it talks about in Genesis 1.26, that I referenced in that prayer at the beginning. The reason these things run so deep in us is because we're created in the image of the triune God. And even though God is one in essence, he's three distinct persons. And for all eternity, there's this intimate community within the triune God. And he created us in his image. And so there's this desire for 
and, and, and within us, there's this idea of us being a, a relational being. And the desire for marriage is one, just one, expression of that. One expression of our deep desire for intimacy. This is why God said at creation in Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. In saying that, he's not saying that marriage is the only way to address that. He's not saying, you know, and some people have this mixed up view, he is not saying that marriage is normal and that somehow singleness is not normal. Not saying that at all. He is saying, I recognize that because they're created in my image, there's a hunger for intimacy that is God-designed. And in a broken world, a fallen world, that lack of intimacy causes pain. And that affects every single person, whether you're here today and you're married or unmarried. You know, one of the great myths about marriage is that marriage always removes loneliness. In all honesty, some of the loneliest people I know are married. At points in our life, everyone in this room knows the pain of unfulfilled longing for intimacy. But it might be fair for me to say that in, in sort of a unique way, singleness seems to make that bubble to the surface a bit. Listen to this letter from a single adult. Here's what I worry about, they write. Never having kids, never waking up to someone, never experiencing intimate touch or sex, facing old age alone. That doesn't mean I'm anxious to marry the first idiot I come across. I can say this to you. I definitely have found joy in being single, but that doesn't mean that it's real simple or that there aren't things I worry about. And all of this stuff is experienced in different ways by different people. Now, somebody here might be thinking this. Here's another question. If I go ahead... And, and sort of process through this and then reach a point of contentment with being single and I tell God I fully accept being single, is he going to stick me with that for the rest of my life? Let me just tell you, that's not what the God of the Bible is like. The God of the Bible loves you. The God of the Bible is not some shady salesman that, you know, bait and switches you. Now that I've got them to admit this, then I'll hold that over them for the rest of their life. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible can be trusted. He loves you. And he wants and will move into your life what is best for you. If we're open to that. And we don't know what tomorrow holds. Matthew says, you know, that tomorrow has enough of its own stuff. It says in Matthew 25. So focus on today, saying, I'm all yours for today. And God will not abuse that trust. So may I suggest for an unmarried person that's here, it might mean something like this, and maybe you're already there in life. It could well be. But for an unmarried person, it might look something like this. I will not wait 
until I get married for my life to start. I will acknowledge reality and I will grieve, you know, to whatever level I might need to grieve. Maybe I don't, but maybe I need to grieve given how I'm wired and the stage that I'm in at life, in life. But with God's help, I'm not going to throw my life away waiting for a day that may or may not come. I'm going to carve out a life that serves God which connects deeply relationally with people, that adds value to the world, that brings great joy and fulfillment into my heart. So, of course, the model for this is Jesus. And, of course, he's the model for everything in life if you're a follower of Christ. If there's been a time in your life where you go, okay, I understand that I've alienated myself from God who's holy. I've done sinful things. And now I understand that this is why Christ came. He came to uh, make a way for me, to pay for my wrong choices, my sinful choices. This is why he went to the cross. This is why he rose from the dead. And I've come to the place where I've asked him to forgive me for my sin, and I've received him as Savior, and I've given him my life as best I know how, So he's in charge of it. And I've come into a relationship with him. And because of that, for anyone in the room, Jesus is the model for every element of life. Every element of life. That's why scripture says, be imitators of Christ. But in a unique way as well, Jesus is the role model in all those ways, but he's also the role model for single life. Let me just say to you, He knows exactly what you're going through at this moment. He knows exactly what you're experiencing. Some people have this um, wrong view of Jesus, that he's sort of invulnerable, unfeeling superhero. Not so. This is why I often will say to you, Jesus is the spirit-filled God-man. He's 100% God. He's 100% human, all at the same time. It's a theological concept talked about. It's, it's the hypostatic union. It's incarnation. And we don't get it. We don't understand it. But scripture clearly teaches it. And so, even though he's 100% God, he's also 100% man. And he's a spirit-filled man. And so he went through life just like you and I do. And he totally gets it. We read about this. In Hebrews chapter 4, and I read this, I read this to you uh, not that long ago, but let me read it to you again. Chapter 4, verse 15, it's talked about in chapter 2 as well of Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest, this is speaking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He doesn't try to understand, he knows exactly what you're going through. We know that he experienced life as we experienced. We can read the story of his life, that he experienced hunger like we do, tiredness, pain, anger, feeling abandoned. And so the question is asked, did he struggle with managing his sexuality? Absolutely yes. Tempted in every way, but filled with the spirit, spirit-filled God-man, he did not sin. So he felt it fully, But he was flawless, not just in behavior, but in his thought patterns and in the things he said. 
So if we're here today and we're biblical believers, we're followers of Jesus, we have a personal relationship with him, we're people the Bible says are saved by grace. Can I just issue this challenge to you? I wonder uh, how many here would be willing with God's help to just say, I'm gonna commit, if I haven't already, I'm gonna commit, like Jesus did, to sexual purity. We're gonna talk more about that in just a few weeks' time. And if I'm here today and there's a relationship I'm involved in that needs to change with God's help, I'm gonna change it. And if there's a behavioral pattern in my life that needs to break off, I will repent of that sin and break it off in the power of the Spirit. And I'll look for others to help support me in that. And if I'm here today and and perhaps you're carrying the pain of sexual brokenness, of past sin, and you just have some deep regret from the past, and you're thinking to yourself, I wonder how Jesus would respond to that. Let me just let you in on a little secret. If you read his story, you're going to find that he got into some of the biggest trouble of his earthly existence because of the huge amounts, just copious amounts of grace that he poured out on single people that were drawn to him that had those kinds of scars in their life. And his, in a, in a completely pure and healthy way, his arms were open to those hurting people. And he loved them, and he had room in his life for them, he, he didn't minimize what they, the, the sinful choices they made, but he said, listen, if you're honest about this, I'll offer you forgiveness. And if you ask for it, I will extend grace to you and I will extend healing to you. So for Jesus, it's very clear that being single did not mean being alone. Let me say that again. For Jesus... Being single did not mean being alone. We can read about this just as an illustration in in Luke chapter 8. We just see that he creates a unique community. It says in chapter 8, in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 are with him, so that's his kind of leadership team, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, and then it mentions a number of them. And in verse 3, at the end of it, it says, These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So Jesus creates this little community that's healthy and pure, in a way that was unique that did not happen. There's no written recording of a rabbi traveling around with men and women. And he, and some of them were married and some of them were single. And so he creates this little community that's healthy and pure and they travel together and they minister together. No other rabbi would do such a thing. And I think there's a number of reasons he did that. We won't go into all these reasons, but one of them, I believe, is he knew the value of bringing community to himself, as he did to those around him, because he was a real flesh and blood person, just like you and me. And so Jesus said, even though I'm single, I'm not going to be alone. And I hope you have a little community 
like that. I hope that we as a church, and I don't think the church, let's just be honest here, I don't think the church in general, nor our church has done great at this. But I hope that we can build the kind of a church where there's no stigma attached to a person's marital status. Where people get this weird idea that marriage is normal and being single is not normal. That's so unbiblical. There's no stigma to being single in the Bible. John the Baptist was likely single. Jesus was certainly single. Paul was single. And I, th- and, I, and I would argue that our society, if you go back 30 or 40 years, it had this, this funny little idea where it stigmatized people that were divorced, and that was wrong. And now that seems to have shifted away from that, and it now seems to be a stigma attached to those that are single. And it's so unbiblical. In Christ... Paul writes about this, and he used to be the champion of all the things on the opposite side of what he writes about in Galatians chapter 3. He says, man, I used to be totally the cheerleader for all these things, but now that I've had this life transformation with Jesus, I realized how totally wrong I was. And he says at the end of Galatians chapter 3, in about verse 25, 26, he says, in Christ... There's no longer Jew nor Gentile. See, earlier in his life as a Jew, the Gentiles coming down the street, before he met Jesus, he would cross to the other side. He wouldn't have anything to do with that guy. And so he says, now that I'm in Christ, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. In the community Christ died to create, all these false inappropriate barriers come down. And so if you're single here today, I just want to say, you are so welcome here. Not only welcome, but necessary. Because we can't be the church that God calls us to be, a community in Christ, as God intends for it to be, unless we're a group of both married and unmarried people. So another question, just practical question. You're here as a single person, and you're saying, Scott, is it wrong for me to be at church and have as part of my agenda, not all my agenda, part of my agenda, to be looking for another person who's a biblical believer, like I am, that I might date that person, or, or that I could even be looking for another believer as a potential spouse? Absolutely not. Debbie and I met in the registration line of Bible college, and I'm registering, and I'm looking at all the freshman girls coming in. That's where we met. Church can be a wonderful place to meet someone who loves Jesus too, who has the same biblical values, foundation that you have. And you might have quite a few differences in life, but the cool thing is, if they're a biblical believer too and have scripture as foundation, you have the most important things in the world in common. Now having said all that, let me just broach a little caution to you. Don't make finding a spouse your only relational goal in life or in the church. So what are a couple of warning signs that that might be happening in your life? You're single, 
And you just find yourself floating from church to church to church to church, never putting down roots, never establishing relationships. That's probably a sign that you've gotten a little off track. Or you walk into a room in your church and there's a bunch of people in there and someone approaches you and you're looking at them and you're dialoguing with this person and you recognize that this person probably doesn't fit your profile for a potential date. And when that happens, your eyes start to scan around the room looking for someone else to connect with. And you can't be fully present with that person. Things have probably gotten a little off track then. So can I invite you to make one of the big goals of your life to say, God, would you help me to just enter into authentic, growth-producing, God-honoring, solid friendships with both men and women, with both married and unmarried people? So let me just say a couple of words to those of us that are married here about this, about this idea of building a community that reflects biblical values where there's this healthy integration of married and unmarried people. How can we contribute to that as married people? Well, here comes a tough one. We need to put a very strong filter on what we say. Because sometimes as married people, we say incredibly hurtful, unthinking things to single people. Let me just give you a few examples. We might say something hurtful like this. So why aren't you married? Very hurtful. Are you dating someone? Because if the answer is no, where do you go from there? Or, don't worry, you'll get married someday. Very hurtful. Because we don't know what the future holds. God, God's the only one that knows what the future holds. So rather than sort of going in that path in life, as married people, let's commit to knocking down some of those inappropriate barriers. And so... As a married person, let's say I'm going to get very intentional about building friendships and having family gatherings and, and you know, I'm going to my kid's soccer game, I'm going to invite someone along uh, and going for coffee and having people over for dinner. I'm going to be very intentional about in those kinds of life activities, including both married and unmarried people. Let's not get into the default mode that sometimes we see in the world. Sometimes uh, we see in the world where it encourages a separation and a dividing and stigmatizing. It's not always like that out there, but sometimes it is. And sadly, sometimes it is in the church. And that is so wrong, we have got to be better. And if we've been guilty of that, Let's confess that sin, let's repent of that, and with God's help, let's make a change. Let's build a community of oneness that reflects the kind of biblical community we read about there in Luke chapter 8. So last question. Will my desire for intimacy ever be fully satisfied? So an idea, there's this theological idea that we see running through Bible 
And it's the idea, someone has coined this term, of the already and not yet. Where positionally, theologically, this is fully true. And yet, because of the environment we live on, we're continuing to live. And so there's this not yet fulfillment, in a sense, as well. And we see this in various ways in Scripture. But one of them is, about, is the one in which I'm about to talk about. What does that mean? For example, um, I have a relationship with God through Christ. So as we talked about earlier, I've bowed the knee, I've repented of my sin, asked him to be my Savior, to be the one in charge of my life. I've entered into relationship with God through Jesus. And it's talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Listen to the already and not yet. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. There's this idea of the already. It's completed. It's done. Positionally, it's finished. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. And so here's this promise that because of Christ, we're literally in the throne room with holy God. Not because of anything we've done, not at all, but because it's all because of Jesus. And so positionally, we're in the throne room with God. But then listen to the transition in verse 7. In order that in the coming ages, he, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so because we're, even though we're in the throne room positionally, we're still living in this environment. And so already, and yet there's this future type of fulfillment as well. Incomparable riches. So what are some of those? For example, and we'll often talk about this at a funeral in Revelation chapter 21. When a biblical believer dies, we're told that they're immediately in heaven. And in heaven, we're told in this this future world that's coming for every person that knows Jesus, there'll be no more tears. Incomparable riches. No more weeping, it says, or gnashing of teeth. It means that even deeper than that, that any missed intimacy because of the sin environment that we live in will be a distant memory in that world. And we will know intimacy of the soul, not only with other believers, but with God. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, right now, in our relationship with God, we see him and it's a little bit hazy. It's like looking through a frosted glass. But in that day, we'll see him face to face. In verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. And so whatever our marital status is in this world, every believer will reach full intimacy with God in that world. And so with God, there will be no aloneness, no rejection. We will understand fully what it means to be chosen and to be known and to be wanted. So back to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea is this big illustration of the nation of Israel and God and their relationship. And Israel has gone way off track and God says, I want to illustrate something to them, Hosea, and I'm going to do it through your life, and it's going to be tough. But I want your life. And so he says to Hosea, I want you to go and marry this particular woman, and it's going to be an illustration of the relationship between Israel 
and, and God at that time, but also in the future. And so he marries this woman. He's obedient to God. He marries this woman, and this woman does some horrible stuff. And they're estranged. But God says, just like I'm reaching out to Israel, I want you to reach out to her. Even though she doesn't deserve it, even though what she's done is not right. And so he does that, and so there's this already but not yet element as well. And there's a future promise for the relationship of the nation, but also, I believe, for us as well. And so when you're, as you're here today, whether you're single or married, I, you know, just listen to the promise from God for you. And you can even close your eyes if you want. Just reflect on the kind of love God is promising to us. It says in that Hosea 2, beginning in verse 16, it says, in that day, remember this is a messianic phrasing, talking about in the coming day when Jesus comes and then when he comes again. In that day, God will say, you will call me my husband. In that day, all may lay down in safety. In that day, I will betroth, which is an old school way of saying promise to marry. In that day, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. There are seven marks in those few verses of what the relationship will look like. I'm not going to go through all of those now, but you can read those in Hosea chapter 2. Seven marks of the relationship. And God is saying, hey, Scott, or anyone here, whatever you've known in life, maybe as a single person it's been very rich and fulfilling and rewarding, and, and you really wouldn't change it at all, but maybe it hasn't. And maybe as a married person it's been the same thing, very rich and rewarding, but maybe it hasn't. Whatever your relationship history or reality, there's, there's something like a wedding in your future, is what Hosea is saying. And this wedding is with God. It's something like a wedding. And whether you're married or single, whether you've known fulfillment or you've known rejection and loneliness, in that day, you will live for eternity chosen, just as you are, loved, Completely because you're in Christ. 